Romans chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 5. Once again, how many of you have all been with us through all or most of uh, Romans so far? Well, tonight, Paul addresses the moralist. That is, the fairly morally good person. The guy who would say, God will let me into heaven because, well, I'm pretty good. I never cheated on my wife or my taxes. I'm not addicted to pornography or alcohol or illicit drugs. I'm not promiscuous. I'm not selfish. I'm not rude. I'm not on skid row or death row or welfare. I'm not a pimp, prostitute, philanderer. I'm pretty good. So me and God are pretty good, right? As a matter of fact, this moralist would probably say, I know some of you guys in, the, in that church. Compared to some of you guys, I'm pretty good. Matter of fact, compared to chapter 1 of Romans, I'm awesome. I am, I've really got it together compared to some of those folks. Let's review chapter 1 real quick, okay? Um, we saw basically four things, uh, and this is obviously a very large outline, a whole bunch of things lumped together. But number one, we saw that God is revealed. He's revealed in nature. Even nature uh, says, look, it's God saying, I'm real, I'm here, you need to come to terms with me. We see God revealed, but we see that man suppresses the truth about him. Then, number two, we saw God rejected. And when we reject God, we see the natural progression is that man becomes stupid. He becomes sophomoric. He thinks he's smart, but he uh, is actually not wise. Then we see, after God is revealed, but yet rejected, we see God replaced because you and I are made to worship. When we reject God, we will replace him with something because we're made to worship. It's called idolatry. And we saw that last time. Man switches out whatever God has designed for whatever he wants instead. And it's always a bad trade. So God revealed, God rejected, God replaced. And then finally where it gets start getting really scary is when God relents. Or he releases. And what we see is man spiraling downward. As God gives man over to that which we demand. We say, we don't believe in you, God. We want to do it our way. As God finally goes, okay. Then you see man spiraling down. I called it into a cesspool of human depravity. And... This is where we left off these these last few verses of chapter 1. See if you can find yourself in here. Okay? Some of you are like, wait, I did that Sunday. I don't want to do it again. Sorry, here you go. Verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over, handed them over to that which they demanded, to a debased mind, to do those things which are not fitting, being filled, it says, with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers. Let's stop there for a second. This is the landscape of what happens when we reject God and replace Him with something else, right? And you may go through that list, and if you're the moralist, you might be like, well, I mean, yeah, yeah. A lot of those things are really terrible, but let's not talk about me. 
But then it says they, they are whisperers. Do you see what, what Paul's doing here? I think he's ver, vice by vice. He's throwing us all under the bus. And the sign on the side of the bus says the righteous wrath of God. And matter of fact, if you want to turn to chapter 3, verse 19, real quick, you'll see this is where Paul's headed. This, he's taking one really long trip to chapter 3, middle of chapter 3. Look at verse 19. It says that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. That's his destination. And we're right in the middle of this trip to everybody in the whole world going, yeah, you know what? I can't say a word in my own defense. Paul is throwing all of us under the bus. No one escapes. You guys want to do something silly tonight? No? <laughs> I'm like, you know, we've got, we got to do something here in the middle of all of this, this uh, judgment here. You guys remember that song? Don't, don't, don't. Another one bites the dust. It actually fits here. But let's do this. Let's do this instead because Paul is throwing us under the bus. Let's say another hit by the bus. Come on, it'll be fun. Humor me. All right. So verse 29, for instance, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil mindedness. Then he gets to they are whisperers. That means people who gossip. Don't, don't, don't. Okay, let's not sing it. You guys, you just, you can just say it. <laughs> you, maybe you're thinking, okay, those other things didn't happen. But wait a second, I, I do sometimes gossip. Or maybe you think, well, look, I, I don't have a problem with sexual immorality, but what about envy? Ever been jealous of someone else's job or their spouse or their car or their health? Paul takes that bus and he mows you down. Well, you think, nope, nope, I don't have a problem with that either. Not, not a problem with envy or uh, backbiters, you're not whispering. Uh, what a, and then uh, verse 30 says, backbiters, behind the back, haters of God. No, that's not me. Violent. No, you say, still, not me. I'm still good. I guess I'm just a little bit better than most, you say. <laughs> Look at the next words there. Proud. Boasters. Dome, dome, dome. All right, yeah, this is going to be rough, I think. And he goes on, he says, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. All the kids sing, don't, don't, don't. Yeah, okay. Verse 31, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, they know it in their hearts, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, that's a dirty trick, Paul. See what he did there? He now takes a whole nother group. We'll call them the voyeurs. Those who would say, look, I would never commit murder. But I sure don't mind watching somebody else do it on my TV. Don't, don't, don't. Yeah. Or those who would say, look, I, I don't commit adultery. Come on, that's, that's just awful. I would never do that. But if someone else does it, I don't mind having it pumped into my house so I can watch. But let's say for the sake of argument that you still don't see yourself here. 
Let's see, for, this, for the sake of argument, all of your friends, all of these other goofballs, have been mowed down by Paul's bus. And you still say to yourself, I'm just not convinced. I don't need Jesus to save me. Because God is going to let me into heaven because I'm basically good. Yeah, all of the things that you mentioned, all of that stuff, those people are terrible. They do deserve their punishment. The sexual immoral, the wicked, the murderers, the inventors of evil things, the unloving, the unforgiving, the unmerciful, all those people do deserve punishment. But me, I'm pretty good. You are the moralist. That is the pretty good guy. You guys know of anybody that, you know, maybe you've talked with them and they're like, yeah, you know, save it. I'm pretty good, especially compared to some of the people I know. If you are the moralist, chapter two is for you. And here comes the bus. Look at it. Verse one it says, therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you who are, you are who judge for in whatever you judge, another you condemn yourself. For you, ju- you who judge practice the same things. Um, I forgot to mention this. Let's see if we can find out what this, the, the, the whole overarching kind of thing is for this particular section. You guys say the word judge or judgment. You ready? Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who. For in, you guys are much better at this. For in whatever you, another you condemn yourself. For you who practice the same things but we know that the of God is according to truth against those who practice such things and do you think this O man you who those who practice such things and doing the same that you will escape the of God skip down to verse 5 but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of judgment day day of revelation sorry of the righteous of God yeah that was my fault So then, is it safe to say the theme for tonight is judgment? And in particular, those last few words, the righteous judgment of God. We've seen God's righteous wrath tonight. We're going to begin to see God's righteous judgment. If you're taking an outline, here's one. The moralist, the guy who says, hey, I'm pretty good. He he misjudges himself. You can, we're going to see that he misjudges himself by comparison. Then we're going to see that the moralist also misjudges God's compassion. We're also going to see the moralist misses, misjudges what he is compiling for himself. And then finally, we're just going to see that God doesn't misjudge. He judges righteously. In chapters 1 through 18... Or one, excuse me, chapter one, verse eighteen, through chapter three, verse twenty, Paul is taking the whole world to court. And by the time we come to chapter two, here, Paul has just rested his case. He's just, all right. I'm going to take a break now that I have presented my case against the prostitute, the philanderer, the promiscuous, the pimp, the druggie, the embezzler, the murderer, the miscreant. And now Paul turns in chapter 2 and he turns to that moralist, that morally upright person. He turns to the guy who's never been in jail, never on drugs, never under arrest or under the influence. The guy who is nodding his head, you know, knowingly as others are being punished. 
The guy who's like, yeah, yeah, they deserve it. They deserve it. If that's you, Paul turns and points at you from across the courtroom and says, you, you are guilty. You know, this is like a, a good Perry Mason episode. Some of you remember Perry Mason. Imagine the moralist comes and he's sitting in the jury box. He showed up to do his job to condemn another. But now all of a sudden, the the finger of God is pointing in his face. Verse 1, Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. Inexcusable. The word means without defense or excuse. Look at it. I want you to see back in chapter 1, it's the exact same word used in verse 20. For all those, quote, bad people. Romans 1.20 For since the creation of the world by his invisible, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The same thing he says to the depraved person in chapter 1. Now he says to the good person in chapter 2. You're, you're without excuse. And pretty soon, as we, as we get further along in this chapter, we're going to see even the, quote, religious person is without excuse. Look at verse 1, though. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. The word whoever is actually P-A-S, um, and it's, it actually means all. It means each and every one. So listen to what Paul is saying. And again, think of what a shock it would be to the guy who thinks of himself as righteous. What Paul is saying is that each and every person who's ever said of another person, that's wrong. How could they do that? I would never do that. Anybody who's ever let those words come out of his mouth is now guilty by their own testimony. Again, like Perry Mason, I just heard you say, now you're guilty. See, if you've ever said, for instance, Tiger Woods, I can't believe he'd do that. If you've ever said, I can't believe that that person could ever do that, then now you are guilty by your own testimony because what you are admitting is, yes, there is a right and a wrong. And if there's a right and a wrong, there must be someone who's deciding right and wrong. You have correctly judged the other sinner. Notice, this does not say... Don't ever judge another person, meaning don't ever make discernments about what's right and wrong. We all do it. We're hardwired to do it. What this is saying is, yes, you've correctly judged them. Now, look at yourself. You've misjudged yourself in relation to this standard that you've just declared, right and wrong. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. See, the moralist, here's the first point in our outline. The moralist misjudges himself by comparison. Have you ever tried to share Jesus with somebody and, and again they say, look, say that don't worry about me. I live a good moral life. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't chew. I don't go with girls who do. <laughs> chew, that is, I guess. What they are saying is, look, don't worry about me. I'm better than the next guy, the average guy, so I'm good, right? What they're presupposing is that God grades on a curve. Now, let me ask you. 
if God graded on a curve, would he be a good judge? Let me give you human terms. Imagine some guy, some crook, steals $10,000 from you. You take it to the judge. The judge is reading your case and he says, it says here that the defendant stole $10,000 from you. Judge says to you, listen, Bernie Madoff, Madoff, I don't know how, which, which his name is pronounced, but he definitely made off with a bunch of other people's money. The judge says to you, look, this guy, Bernie Madoff, stole untold millions. So, I'm just going to throw this case out because in the grand scheme of things, your $10,000, come on. Case dismissed. Have a nice day. Is that a good judge? See, God is just. That's one of the themes of this book. He must be just. And He is. He's always right in His judgment. And He will not judge you incorrectly. He will not judge you according to how you stack up to other criminals. That would be unjust. Matter of fact, look at it, verse 2. But we know that the judgment of God is not according to how bad other people are. No, is according to truth against those who practice such things. Paul says, look, God judges... His courtroom is based not by comparison, not on a curve, but by the truth, the actual facts at hand. Okay, you say, all right, I get that. But listen, I haven't done the things that Paul says. Because in, in verse 1, he says that I'm guilty because I say that this person's wrong. But I, yes, I agree that murder is wrong, but I've never killed anybody. Yes, I agree that adultery is wrong, but I've never committed it. Follow me here. We've established that God judges not by comparing you to others, right? But by comparing you to truth. Do you remember that Jesus said about himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Listen, God does not righteously judge you by comparing you to me. (laughs) If he did, you guys would be in pretty good shape, maybe. He judges you by comparing you to truth, absolute, perfect truth. And his name is Jesus. And what did Jesus say about God's standards? Turn with me to Matthew 5. The bus is beginning to roll here. Matthew 5, verse 20. Jesus speaking. Okay? The man who called himself truth and God agreed with him. Matthew 5:20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, and these guys were, were the, the quintessential rule keepers, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Then he says, verse 21, For instance, you've heard it said, It was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother, and then it says without cause, but that's not in the original, whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be danger of the council, but whoever says fool shall be in danger of hell fire. Jesus, the truth, 
but says the standard is, well, let me put it this way. Any of you ever lost your temper? Yes? Boom, boom, boom. Verse 27, Jesus goes on, he says, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Boom, boom, boom. Some of you aren't talking because you've been hit by the bus. Verse 31, furthermore, it has been said. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I see to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commit adultery. Anyone in the room, don't raise your hand. Divorced. You have been hit by the bus. Verse 33. Again, you heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all. Neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Anyone ever said one thing and done another? That's your tattoo on the front of that bus. Verse 38, and you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him, to turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, you go with him too. Give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow you from you, do not turn away. Has anyone in this room fallen short of that standard? Yes. Well, what about this standard? Verse 43, you have heard it that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be your sons of your father in heaven. And in case any of you still think you're still standing, verse 48, therefore you shall be perfect. Jesus could have said, like me. You shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. God's righteous judgment is now on track to mow down every single person unless they're honestly willing to say, I have lived a perfect life from the day that I was born until now. See, the moralist misjudges by comparison. God does not judge us by comparing one to the other. He compares us to the truth, the standard that his son set. Verse 3, and do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, albeit maybe in a lesser degree, you're still doing it, you're still breaking that commandment, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, you think you will escape the judgment of God? The word think there is reckon, to compute, to calculate. In the Greek, it's Logizomai, listen, it's the same place we get the word logic. It, does it add up? Does it compute? Paul is saying, he's got his finger pointed across the courtroom to the moralist. He says to the moralist, okay, do you really think this computes? Is it logical that you can point the finger at the pornography guy 
and think that God will give you a pass on what's in your heart. Paul says, is it logical for you to think when you have engaged in character assassination by gossiping behind someone's back, that you can point to a murderer, a real assassin, and say to God, go get them, and think that he's not going to look at you and go, uh, we have something else to deal with here. Does it really add up for you to point to those in politics who lie and say, I would never do that. They don't deliver on their promises when you promise things and don't deliver. The moralist misjudges because he's miscalculating thinking that God works by comparison, but he doesn't. Next, verse 4. We're going to see the moralist misjudges God's compassion. Verse 4. Or do you despise, that means to disdain, to look down your nose upon. Do you despise the riches? The word riches there means ridiculous wealth. Do you despise this awesome wealth of his goodness? That is gentle Gentleness, kindness, his forbearance, that means his ability to tolerate abuse and long-suffering. We saw that word not too long ago in Second Peter. It's macrothumia. It means extremely high boiling point. Paul says to the moralist, are you doing the math here or are you looking down your nose at how incredibly patient God is, is with you. His amazingly high boiling point. Do you not know, it says, verse 4, that the goodness of God is intended to lead you to repentance? The moralist misjudges himself by comparison, but he also mistakes God's compassion, listen, for consent. In other words, his argument is this. Hey, I'm still around. God hasn't burned me into a crisp yet, so God must be okay with me. Okay. He says, look, if I'm so bad, if I really need Jesus, like you say I do, then why do I still, for instance, have a nice car, a, a nice job, a, a, a decent family? I mean, God must be, he can't be too upset with me because look at how he's blessing me. I don't have liver disease like the druggie. I don't have venereal disease like the promiscuous. I got food on my table. I got a car in my garage. I got a decent job, especially in this economy. He must be pretty okay with me. That moralist would say to you, you can just keep your Jesus. I think God must be pretty fine with me. I mean, if he's even real. If he's even real, he's either not paying attention or he is apparently fine with my behavior. Because if he wasn't, I would be on skid row. Paul says, you are looking down your nose. At God's abundant mercy to you. And you are mistaking God's compassion for his consent. You're mistaking the fact that he is not willing that you would perish. And you're thinking that somehow he's okay with your sin. Again, we saw it in Second Peter. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to this word it says, Repentance. Repentance means to turn direction, to, to change your mind. It really, first and foremost, means to change your mind. To The very first thing you knew, need to do is say, God, you are right. You are righteous, and I am not. I'm going to change my mind and ask you to change the rest of me. 
Okay? He says, look, are you despising his goodness, his forbearance, his long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God is intended to lead you to repentance if you will not repent, verse 5, in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The word impenitent there, it means not willing to admit a change of mind. So, Paul is saying, look, I've just confronted you with, with the things in your heart and that you're guilty. But when you're impenitent, you go, whatever, I'm not listening. I'm still not changing my mind. Impenitent. Unwilling to admit a change of mind. Unrepentant. And then it says uh, hardness. The word is obstinacy, stubbornness. Interesting, the word is sclerotis. And it's the place, same place we get the word sclerosis. Like arteriosclerosis, the hardening of the arteries. He's saying, look, what's happening is your heart is being hardened. Now, you guys know hardening, hardening of the arteries will kill you physically. The hardening of your heart will kill you eternally. Paul says to the moralist, look, you're, you're miscalculating God's compassion. You're mistaking God's compassion and you're thinking somehow he's okay with how you are. The moralist misjudges uh, God's compassion. But next, the moralist misjudges what is coming his way or what he's compiling. Look at verse 5. But in accordance with, in accordance with your, the hardness of your impenitent heart, you are, it says, treasuring up for yourself. That is compiling. The word is thesarizo. It's the same place we get the word thesaurus. What's a thesaurus but a store, uh, stockpile of words? Okay? You are piling up for yourself... Paul says, wrath, in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Understand what's happening here. Paul says, to the well-to-do, to the well-bred, to the well-intentioned, to the guy who thinks he's well-off with God, yeah, you're collecting something, but it's not brownie points. You think you're collecting brownie points. You think you're just compiling all these good deeds into your account. Uh, you, you work at the soup kitchen. You, you drive an electric car. You feed the homeless. You vote Republican. You vote Democrat, whatever. You think that you're compiling good decisions, good deeds... If you've never surrendered to his son, who is the truth, you think you're going to stand before God and that God is going to pat you on the head and say, good job, good job that you never did drugs. Good for you. You think he's going to say, good job, you, you, you taught Sunday school. That, good for you. You think that God is going to look at you and go, wow, what a pile of good deeds. Great job, great thesaurizo there. Paul says, look, without repentance, you are piling up, all right, but you are piling up wrath. And it says, you won't discover it until, verse 5, the day of wrath, and it says, the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Do you see what he's saying? There's coming a day when revelation means to unveil, 
There's coming a day when your eyes will be opened. There is coming a day for every moralist that is truly an eye-opener. See, in, have you thought about this? In, in one sense, this moralist in chapter 2, I think is to be pitied more than the heathen pagan dog in chapter 1. Think about that. Chapter 1, we, we left with the heathen, all of us, hopefully, we all recognize it. The heathen who is wallowing in the mire, he spiraled, spiraled to the bottom of the cesspool. At least, did you notice, remember chapter 1, it says the wrath of God is being revealed. At least the heathen has the advantage of seeing that it's happening to him right now. Man, I got liver disease. Man, maybe God's not happy with me. You see what an eye-opener it's going to be to the one who lives in the nice house and he, he never cheated on his wife. He, he did all these things and he thinks that he's got brownie points. Paul says, without repentance, you are piling up the wrath and you are in for a big eye-opener. The thing that you're treasuring up is not what you think it is. You're com- you think you're compiling righteousness, but you... in fact, have been using the wrong standard. Other people. Without repentance, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath. Okay? Well, we have looked at the moralist's misjudgments. Let's uh, look tonight, the rest of tonight, at God's righteous judgment. Okay? Verse 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That's the whole topic tonight. Verse 6. Who will render, that is, he will pay back. Who will render to each one according to his deeds. He's quoting Proverbs 24, verse 12. We won't go there yet, but we will uh, soon. If this is really important to everybody awake, because this is a point I don't want you to miss. Um, boom, boom, boom. Yeah, you're not awake. All right. This is really important for us to understand. Um, when you read verses 7 through 10, it can look like the opposite of the gospel. It can look like what the moralist actually believes, which is, hey, I'm, I do pretty good, and so God's going to bless me. And that guy over there does t- terrible, so God's going to not bless him. What you need to realize is that Paul is setting his case. He's throwing everybody under the bus so that nobody... Look at verse 7. Uh, verse 7 says good stuff happens. Uh, he's, gonna, he's going to judge... Uh, well, I'll just read it. <laughs> Eternal life to those who, by patient continuance and doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Okay. Now look at verse 10. Other good stuff. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now look at verses 8 and 9. That's the bad stuff. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, in indignation or wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. If you don't understand this, you can look and go, okay, well, there's, there's the good people in verse 7 and 10 and then the bad people in verses 8 and 9. What Paul is doing this whole time is saying, look, there ain't nobody in, in verse 8 and 9 except Jesus. Okay? Oh, I'm sorry. Ain't, ain't nobody in verse 7 and 10. Okay. It looks like Paul is describing two groups. 
he's, that he's saying good stuff goes to good people, verse 7 and verse 10, but bad stuff goes to bad people, verse 8 and 9. What you have to remember is that apart from repentance, nobody qualifies as good. Matter of fact, this is a great time. I didn't write it down, but I knew the Lord was probably going to want me to share it somewhere. You guys remember when, when a man came to Jesus and said, good teacher, and Jesus stopped and said, why did you call me good? says, no one is good but God. What Jesus was saying is, you just uncovered something here. You're calling me God, and you're right. But nobody deserves that title, meaning perfect in the eyes of God, but God himself. Okay? So nobody fits in uh, verses 7 and 10, but we'll read it. God will, will judge justly. Rightly, verse 7, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Verse 8, but to those who are self-seeking, interesting, it means to seek office by unfair or deceptive means. To those who are self-seeking and do not obey, literally it means refuse to believe. Very interesting. To those who refuse to believe and do not obey um, the truth but obey unrighteousness, What's, what's due do, do in store for them? Indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, verse 10, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, Paul is beginning just now to address the religious man. We haven't even got to him yet. We've talked about the, the folks who are on skid row. We've talked about the, the folks who live a, a moral and righteous life, maybe aren't convinced that God's paying attention. But Sunday, he's going to begin to talk to religious folks. But the point here probably is best summarized, verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. Paul's point here, the one that he's been making, God's judgment is righteous. He shows no partiality, no favoritism. The word partiality there is prosopolempsia. And it is from two words. The first one is prosopon. It means the face or the face of things, the outward circumstances. Okay. And the, the second part of the word is lombano. It means to take. So this is the way you could understand this. Paul saying, look, God doesn't take things at face value. He doesn't look at the outward circumstances. He's not fooled by your outward demeanor. He's not impressed by your wealth. He's not impressed by your birth. If you're a Jew, he's not even impressed with the blood that impresses the rest of us that courses through your veins. He's not impressed with your fame. He's not impressed with your beauty. Believe it or not, he's not even impressed with my beauty. <clears throat> Sorry, trying to keep it light. He's not even impressed by your charity. He's not impressed by your understanding of the Bible. He's not impressed, moralist, by how much better you are than the hypocrites in this church. If he's a righteous God, and he is, he must not judge you by comparison with others. Other criminals. He must judge you according to truth. He must judge you not by comparing you to me, which again, you'd probably have a decent shot then. He must, he must judge you by comparing you to the truth, Jesus. Now, 
That's why I say verse 7 and verse 10 were disqualified from. And this should clear it up. Again, look at verse 3, or chapter 3, sorry. Chapter 3. And this, again, is kind of where Paul's going. This is just one slow burn for all of us. Romans 3, look at verse, uh, the end of verse 10, I think it is. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Boom, boom, boom. See, in, my, in the, the, the time that I've been studying, I'm in the Old Testament. I'm in, in First and Second Kings. You guys, anybody else read the, the book of First and Second Kings? And it, and it goes on and it says, well, this, this king was, was a terrible king. And this king was a really terrible king. Hey, this king was a pretty good king by comparison. But he still had the he still uh, refused to destroy these altars over here. This king was pretty decent. Oh, now he's no, not one. And these are the kings. These are the the cream of the crop, right? What about David, a man after God's own heart, except for that little Bathsheba incident and the whole, you know, killing her husband. Wait, what about Moses? He was awesome. Wait a second. Remember when he wasn't allowed into the promised land? And don't we look at that and we go, it's such a little thing. Is that clicking at all for you? Such a little thing could keep a man who wrote most of the Old Testament out of the promised land. What does that tell you? Look back in verse uh, 6. It says, God... um, he will judge righteously, right? Um, he's referring to Proverbs 24. Turn to Proverbs 24 if you like real quick. It's interesting because the writer of Proverbs 24 addresses the guy who will not admit his stubbornness. The writer of Proverbs 24 is basically saying there is no excuse. Verse 12. If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? You see it? Even in the Old Testament, they were saying, look, if you insist that you don't need a Savior, what you need to know is that then God must judge you righteously. And that is not good news for you. But if, on the other hand, you see your need for a Savior, Paul says, now I have Good news for you. And that begins chapter 3, verses 21 and beyond. That's when God's righteousness can be imputed to you. He can hand it to you. Awesome. So, the atheist and the heathen and now the moralist have been mowed over by the bus. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your mercy your goodness. I thank you, Lord, that you love the people who have shown up tonight. You love them so much that you're going to tell them the truth. Again, what a terrible eye-opener for those who think that they're moral, that they're right with you. They've never taken the time to really seek your face. But because they just keep their eyes on other 
people and they, they compare themselves to others. They think they're good enough. I thank you, Lord, that you love the people that are here tonight enough to bring them here to hear this message. You're never going to be good enough. You need to surrender. Give your heart to me. You need to let my son's blood cover your sin. There's no hope otherwise. Pray that you be with us tonight as we spend this time in application. We love you, Lord, and ask you to continue to do all that you're up to tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.